This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast, brought to you by FinPro Search Partners. Insurance companies are businesses and they need to look for the long term and be sustainable. We went from zero to one and now it's going from one to a hundred. Insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service, is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now. I think the companies that are going to succeed are the ones that are going to understand and master the art of intent. When we talk about innovation, we lean too heavily to think about technology and we don't think about creating a culture of innovation. I think innovation is essentially continuous improvement of existing processes and platforms and product, right? It's got to be easy. It's got to be seamless. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bonds, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Ty Harris, who's CEO and co-founder of OpenLeaf. Um, Ty, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. You've um, you've got a much more exotic background than me. I'm quite jealous of your uh, office setup. Uh, where where are you joining us from? Where's Where's home for you? Yeah, so I, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, for about three years now. I but we we built openly in the early days uh, in Boston, and that's still our headquarters. But we're dispersed everywhere. We have people in about forty five states. Wow, wow, really spread out. And um, yeah, we're going to dive into that. So, those that don't know openly, um, give us give us a lowdown time. And and what's the openly business? Yeah, so we are a uh, you know recently founded uh, tech enabled home insurance company. So, you know, I had a had a long kind of corporate career in insurance and. We built openly, launched uh, in 2017, and the idea was to it was really kind of twofold. One was to improve some things that are generally wrong with insurance, so you know high expense ratios and you know non-tech-enabled annoying interactions and things like that. But we had a little bit more specific thesis, which was that you know about half of home insurance is sold by these independent agents, and so even though we're selling fundamentally a consumer product, home insurance. What we really need to do is also appeal heavily to these independent agents who are selling it on and, and counseling the customers who are buying it. And so that's really how we win. As we go after, we say we are going to create the best possible experience, not just for the consumers, but also for the independent agents who uh, are, are working with them. And that's that's really sort of how we've won. We're in 21 states now. We have about 300 people at the company, and it's really taken off. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm always amazed that... Um... And and this is this is not something I'd scheduled to ask you, but I'm I'm fascinated about culture, so I want to just ask you a culture question because because you have grown so quickly and you've been successful. You've you're across the number of forty people in forty five states. I think you know where do you how do you keep culture when you're growing at that scale, or, or certainly from a kind of CEO point of view, what what have you done practically to try and keep culture when you're scaling at that speed? Yeah, it, this was one of my great. Uh, I don't know if fear is the right word, but certainly one of the biggest challenges in the early days of Openly. Uh, you know, I had come from a big corporate background where there was a great emphasis on the importance of not just doing things, but being a great leader. And I think in a lot of startups, people kind of forget about that part and they say, well, I've got this great product and, you know, that the people side will kind of take care of itself. And, and before they know it, they find themselves with, you know, hundreds or thousands of people and they've never put effort into building. Well, what's that really going to look like? So to me, you know, there's the there's the the cultural side. There's this kind of structural side. There's what do you look for in talent? But to, to me, it's it's a couple of things. One is be explicit about your culture. You, 
you know, people often think, well, I want to be the best company that everyone works wants to work for. That's I don't think that's actually what you want. You want to be a company that uh, the people who want to work there are the kind of people who compliment you and who and who you need working for you. You you have to make choices. You're, no company is going to be the one that everybody would pick as their favorite company to work for. And when you are very explicit about your cultural values, for example, we talk heavily about curiosity and integrity and teamwork, empathy, urgency, and we we. Um, in, in everything we do, at you know, all hands meetings and praise we're giving people, we we really these values reverberate and resonate, and that draws certain, I think, types of people to the company who are going to work well the way that we we like to work. Um, so it's I think it's being explicit, and then I think it's being extremely. The, the thing you can do as a leader more than anything is be extremely picky and demanding with your direct reports. Uh, you know, there's only so much direct interaction you're going to have with every single human being at a 300 person company but you have to make sure what you do control is that your direct reports you know put the same emphasis on culture that you do and are um, talented and just great fits for the company and a lot of people mm -hmm. let don't, don't do that enough they're not they're not i don't say harsh but they're not uh demanding enough of, of what that team needs to look like Mm. I love the I love the term deliberate, and 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 you touched on a few things that really resonate with me. Obviously, you know I work in the talent industry, and and there's two things that I'm always surprised about, with, which people want everyone to have their dream home at their company, and I kind of understand that from you know someone that runs their own business, you kind of have that you know it's your baby, you want everyone to love your baby, but the reality is, if that's the case, then you're probably not perfect for anybody. You're better off being perfect for a few few people, and then also this thing where people get used to get very excited about saying, well, no one ever leaves here. And I was like, there's nothing good about that either. <laughs> you, you need a healthy level of churn. You don't, you, if that churn's too high, and there's a problem. But if you don't have a healthy amount, that's interesting. And the, the reason I started with that question was specifically because of your background. At some point, you, you work for Liberty. Um, and I, I just, I, and I commented to you about this before, I've just seen lots of really good people come through that kind of Liberty conveyor belt of, of talent um, and they seem to be very good at taking people from different industries and bringing them in and I, I, I was trying to wonder whether it was Liberty particularly good at it or just they've done it at such a scale that I've, I've spotted a pattern that isn't there so are they particularly good at set up for fresh talent into the industry or is it just they're doing it at such scale I've, 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 I've drawn some parallels that don't exist yeah well look I'm I, I only have my own experience to fall back on and, and look at but what I'll say for me I was a career changer when I went there in 2005, I was in grad school working on a, a thesis in a PhD program in economics and kind of decided I wanted a different thing, went in and said, what could I do? I, I was playing a lot of poker at the time. I love statistics and, you know, teaching statistics at oh, insurance. They use statistics. So went across the river from where I was in school, uh, knocked on the door at Liberty and without really knowing what I was throwing myself into, uh, got hired there. And what I found was maybe it was fortuitous, but I, I walked into a department. I was on the on the personal line side there, where I early on had some great, I'd say, you know, mentors and, and leaders there who were very entrepreneurial in the way that they saw the, the personal line space there. Maybe it's because that particular company had a long history of being like kind of a workers comp and commercial company and personal lines was, was more like a startup operation, even within a big company. But for whatever reason, I had people who were willing to look at my skills, which were not from insurance, but say, hey, there's something valuable he brings. Let's, you know, if Ty wants to work all the time and and invent new ways to do things, we're going to enable that and and work with them to to think about uh, being open to those new ways of doing things. So I felt really lucky. And I, 
I look at other companies. I don't know if it's you know apocryphal, but certainly the what you hear about a company like Progressive is that in the early days, I think they put an emphasis on hiring people who were more generalist MBAs to run states like businesses, as opposed to maybe the traditional an underwriter and, and the, the technical methods they use. So I, I do think you have a lot of examples out there of insurance companies taking ways of working and skill sets that have worked in other verticals and bringing it into insurance and, and really cleaning up. Certainly the emphasis on technology over the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years in insurance is an attempt to do that. I don't think it's always been right. And sometimes people have focused on the wrong part of the problem, but it's certainly a good instinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's getting close to that hiring smart people and, and just let them solve problems, I think, um, which I think the tech world has been much, much better at. I mean, it's something I've, I've sort of talked about a few times is that if you look at the kind of age of a, of a tech leader, um, so much younger and not necessarily because the, the the parallels are just the culture whereas i think in insurance we, we can be quite guilty of not giving people the opportunity to fail well, when actually we've probably got environments in which they can fail if, if we set it up correctly so yeah it was just an interesting thing to touch on um uh, still a young business I, I mean founded in 2017 i believe um but um in in insure tech terms that that makes you a veteran i think i think now i think that's uh getting on close for it so you know but you saw that an insure tech when at a time a lot of people were pushing the direct consumer you've gone for agents uh, agent distribution um i just wondered why not go down that direct to consumer route uh, was it something you considered yeah yeah no it's great and and i think at the time we were launching, certainly our, the path we ended up taking was considered very contrarian. And most of our, you know, seed stage VC meetings, uh, you know, three quarters of those were kind of scoffing at this idea of going through agents instead of going direct. At the time, the conventional wisdom, I would, if there was such a thing, was that the problem with insurance was that you had these intermediaries and what you needed to do was just take this product and take it direct to consumer and eliminate cost by doing that. Um, just to, I, my answer, you know, if you think about would we would we kind of go direct or are we um, is that something we've considered that the, the answer really depends on what you mean by that question. I, I'm not trying to be cute, but yeah. when people think of what does direct insurance mean, I think they confound two different concepts. One is when I say insurance is going direct, they, they could mean well it's going to be more and more digital, so there's going to be less you know human interactions and paper pushing, and it's going to be more conducted online with consumers interacting with interfaces that kind of thing. And I think that's certainly true. Um, that that will, more and more of that will happen regardless of the the channel that it goes through. But the other thing they they mean by that sometimes is that it's the the ultimate underwriting carrier connecting direct with a consumer without an intermediary in the middle. And and I don't believe in that. So when we when we are betting on agents, what we mean is we're betting on uh, intermediated choice for consumers. Uh, so a consumer goes to one distribution point. And they might have a partially digital interaction. They might have an entirely human interaction. It could be a digital agent. It could be a human agent. But regardless, that entity they're interacting with, computer or human, is helping to find them the best coverage and the best pricing by helping them search multiple carriers, right? And that, that's a different model. So it's like it's like uh, if you were going to buy a plane ticket, you could go to Delta Airlines website, which actually I'm a big Delta fan. So you know, but but you or you could go to like Kayak and and shop that way. And I actually think that um, the the kayak model, even if you said insurance is going to go entirely digital, I think you'd probably bet on more of a kayak model than a go, you know, to like 10 different insurance websites and put in your 130 pieces of information to, to each one. So long way of saying we're, we're building for a future where there's intermediate, intermediated choice um, and probably increasingly digital, although maybe not at the pace that everyone is expecting.
Yeah, the great answer to that question, and uh, <laughs> maybe realize that I could have worded it better to be more specific. But I, th I think it's an interesting point that you raised um, with me when we, we we spoke previously, and and, and you made this um, statement, which I, I I won't lie, I've subsequently stolen and used in a few conversations since. Um, but I thought you made a really interesting point about how carriers have become or um, becoming the new independent agents. So Nationwide, Liberty, Mutual, Geico, Progressive, et cetera. But I wondered if you'd explain that point um, because I thought it yeah. was super interesting the way that you kind of perceive that market. Yeah, no, that's great. If you, if you just take a snapshot of how are people buying home insurance, that's our space um, as of you know a couple of years ago, it's roughly 50% of it is consumers buy through what you would traditionally consider an independent agent. So that's an agent who works with multiple Carriers who themselves say we're an independent agency carrier, we you know travelers, we sell through independent agents, we're not really direct, et cetera. The other 50% is sold through something that is what you would consider captive or uh, you know or specific to the carrier. So you have like State Farm. If you go to a State Farm agent historically, in general, they're going to sell you State Farm's product or nothing. All state, same thing historically. Liberty Mutual, same thing historically. You know you you buy the brand and it's through a call center or through a captive agent. They're going to sell you their thing. What you've seen though over the last uh, five eight years and, and really taking on increasing steam is that a lot of those historically captive channels or direct channels have said, hey, wait a second, even the best of us, or, you know, the, the best uh, call center selling uh, a, a product exclusively and directly might close, I don't know, 10% of consumers that, that come to them for a quote and the other 90%, they're just not going to have, they're not going to sell them something because they don't have the right price point or they they don't fit their underwriting appetite or they don't have the right product. And so you're squandering this tremendous money, the billions of dollars you're spending on acquiring customers, on advertising, on you know all that stuff, and you're just letting them get away um, without leveraging that into something economics. It's also not great for consumers because they're wasting their time, you know, in a 10% probability of buying something. So the solution to that has been that many of these historically captive carriers or direct carriers have said, wait a second, if, we, if we're not going to sell them our product, why don't we sell them something? And so they have turned themselves, practically speaking, into what I would identify as a giant independent agency where they, you know, they may not sell them the Liberty product, but they'll sell them uh, some some other person's product. And now there's a great, there's a gradation, I would say. Some carriers will, you know, try and sell their own product. And then if they can't, if it's underwritten out or something, then they open up to selling others. Some of them are just saying, well, we're just going to flat out become independent agencies. So you look at like, you know, kind of nationwide has turned their previously captive sales force into effectively independent agents. Um, and, you know, you see Liberty has made some big announcements around their, his, their uh, giant local agency force and having them be able to sell other people's products on a, on a fairly par basis. So I think that's the future. They're, they're, what those carriers are great at is getting consumers to come talk to them. And they will better monetize that by offering the consumers a choice of products. That then becomes, you look at it from our perspective at Openly, we say, well, great, that's somewhere we can sell now. So prior to that, if someone saw a Liberty Mutual commercial and went there, they're not going to ever end up buying Openly as part of that interaction. But these days, they could. Um, I'm not picking out Liberty. I'm just any of these big carriers. We, that now becomes a place where we could sell our product. Fascinating, really, because it's almost like the ultimate embedded play, right? Isn't it? You, 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 they've come to you that you've got a, you've got this huge brand, you've got this uh, reputation for being a carrier that people can trust, but you can't match the price point. Someone else can. You, you, you as uh, let's say Liberty, you maintain that customer relationship because you still serve them well, and 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 they they get the product they want 
um it's, it's a really interesting change of dynamic it's it's smart right because otherwise you'll you, you'll put yourself in the position where particularly in the uk we're hugely everyone buys pretty much insurance through marketplaces comparison sites and and there's a lot of negative impacts on the insurance industry and insurance products as a whole so yeah i i, I thought it's such an interesting point that you raised and yeah i have borrowed that in more than one conversation so thanks ty it was uh that was, that's been helpful for me um i my pleasure <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, so what we shamelessly do the podcast for to, 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 to make, my, make myself smarter um the, the the other thing you said that i thought was really really interesting was about ambition um and we talked about you know you you're very much aiming for openly to be the kind of number one in in, in home in, and certainly in several states but kind of that, that ambition to be the number one is it realistic that someone could get to number one um there's so much kind of out there that says you can't, you can't outspend the big carriers. No one can unseat them. I suppose it goes into strategy, yeah. but is that realistic? And, and if so, how, how so? Yeah. And I think there, there is the, the conventional wisdom in insure tech via five years ago was that if you just take existing products and bring them direct to consumers, you will win and you'll put state farm out of business, whatever. I think that has been proven you know, false is not that easy. Um, I think that then people ran to, well, the only opportunities in InsureTech are these highly niche plays. And so I'm going to find some squirrely corner of commercial insurance where, you know, no one's willing to underwrite today. And I'm going to really nail that using partly technology and partly just old fashioned, you know, market dislocation. And that's what you should bet on. And there's some wisdom to that too. I mean, it's, it is harder to take on uh, a broad-based uh, big, big carrier. We we are, I think we're neither of those. We're, we're not you know, we're, where we're investing is not in that old school, hey, just bring this thing direct. We're really investing heavily in the guts of what makes insurance ineffective or, or inefficient at the big carrier. So we are, we, we don't uh, underestimate the task at hand, but at the same time, we are pretty broad-based. We, we're never going to be 50% market share. I don't think maybe anyone should in insurance given the way that it works, but we, we see no reason we cannot over the next 15 years become the number one provider of personal insurance through the independent agency channel, which by the way, as I just said, is growing, right? And mm -hmm. you could say that seems crazy ambition. How could you ever say that? But we have leading indicators of this. We'll look at our state footprint. We're in 21 states today, and we'll look at our new policy sales compared with the giant incumbents in the space. And we're catching up. We're, uh, you know, it's, it, you can't measure exactly how much they're selling as new business. So you have to estimate, but we, have, but we, we reckon that we're very close to them within our state footprint, close to like the, the number one travelers, the number two safe liberty within our state footprint of selling homeowners insurance through independent agents. And we have way less churn than they do. We have 91% policy retention, whereas they are, they publicly state that they're down in the, the low eighties. And so we say it's just a matter of time. This thing's just got to build up. And then we got to take it to more states and eventually more products. We'll, we'll eventually offer carefully paired auto insurance and umbrella, things like that. And once we do that, there's no magic. It's not like we're we're betting on some leap of leap of faith that we haven't proven. We just have we feel like we just have to do what we're doing now, but but much more of it, <laughs> if you will. Mm. Yeah, but, but but I think it speaks to your experience of working in the insurance industry prior to starting with InsureTech. And I think some of the kind of misguided um growth projections, competition projections on the, the earlier, essentially more um, sort of like blindly ambitious when the valuations were going crazy was a little bit on, I didn't think the timescales were right. You know, you, you mentioned there within a 15 year timescale. So I don't think anyone was talking about 15 year timescales. People were talking about five year timescales and, you know, and, and, 
you know, and 15 years in insurance is, is, a, is, a, is a blink of an eye, as we both know, but it, it's still a kind of realistic time to kind of get that footprint and, and also kind of adding value at the, at the important points. And, and, and I think some of, I don't know if you'd agree, but some of the kind of um, things I, I saw people focus on, I saw people selling as USPs, I thought, I'm not sure if that matters to an insurance consumer. Um, and, and that's kind of like, there, there's a bit of tech for tech's sake. Um, but I, I suppose actually that's something I wanted to ask you a question on because we we talked to there's a lot of like tech and science and what the what what you guys are doing you're 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 very much on the bleeding edge of technology in in how you're offering your insurance products what you do internally and externally but the the big question I had for you was the front and center of your website is it's just how experienced your team is for example how experienced your 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 claims team is so. What is kind of a, I want to talk about the tech versus non-tech as an edge that, and, and as you see it. Yeah, you, you have to build for things that are really problems that people care about, right? And it, is it really, for a consumer of home insurance, is it really a huge problem in your life that every 10 years when you switch on average, that it, it takes a little time and it's annoying? That, that is annoying, no doubt, but that's probably not like in your top 10 problems you have in your life. By contrast, for an independent agent, that is a massive daily problem. The fact that it takes 20 minutes or two weeks to get a quote uh, for home insurance, that is, as opposed to like eight seconds with us, that is a massive problem for this person where that's their job. Same thing applies. Um, what really matters about your home insurance to a consumer? Maybe not that shopping experience every 10 years, but if you have a claim, boy, does that matter? Your house burned down or someone, you know, then it's suddenly front and center and, and importance. And so what we've done is said, let's make sure that, yeah, we, we have the kind of nice to have speed and ease for, for consumers, certainly, but let's really tackle these problems at the moment when it matters. For an agent, it always matters how long it takes to shop for the insurance. Check, do that. For a consumer or an agent, frankly, it really matters at the time of claim. Let's not skimp on that. Let's not have a, you know, little animal that you have to talk to before talking, you know, let's, let's, let's hire, we have, for example, our average claims adjuster across the team we built has 19 years of experience. Um, and we, we've just really doubled down on being able to provide an outstanding high net promoter score driving claims experience. But I will say the tech, the tech enables the great human experience. And so in claims, for example, we handle 75% of our claims from the desk, meaning that we don't have to send an adjuster out to the house. Now, we're able to do that in part because of technology that we use. So we have ways that a consumer can go and kind of self-inspect their house and you know deal with us in, in that fashion. Now, that in, a, that in turn enables us to have a virtual call center of claims adjusters, which enables us to hire people with 19 years of experience, right? If you broke, if you didn't have that tech, you start pulling in that thread and say, well, now I'm going to have to always send people out. Now I'm going to have to have people in 21 states, but we're not really big enough that we're going to have to pay a lot less. We're going to have to have less experienced adjusters. And the whole thing sort of unravels. It's the same way where in underwriting, the fact that we give a quote in five or 10 seconds enables us then to be much more picky about the consumers that we do let through. So the, the, the speed and ease of the quote actually enables better underwriting and, and better pricing, which which has a different effect. It has an effect on our under, on our loss ratio. So just, I, I guess the point, my the overarching point is um, tech can be extremely useful in enabling results beyond the immediate effect of the tech, but just, but just think it through, be careful how you're using the tech. And often that means using the tech to enable people to be in the loop with, with great people as well. Mm. Yeah, that's resonating with me today. We've um, we've been trying some new technology internally, and and what we realised is that it was this classic thing of it looks good, 
but we realized we had to keep changing our process to fit that and it's like well no then then you've created and it created a new set of problems and it really made me think about technology in the insurance space is that if i have to adapt to my behaviors like i know how to buy insurance and i know when i have to do it and and, and to your point it's like a, yeah i'm not that concerned about um we it's a painful process buying insurance it's a grudge purchase no one wants to do it so kind of having a little element of grudge making that kind of 10 percent quicker isn't going to impact me having said that in the last two years i've been unfortunate enough to make two claims and and the claims experiences were were completely different one was painless and brilliant and slick and fast and and the other one was you know almost like the old school um i thought, I thought someone's going to come around my house and fingerprint me and you know sort of it was it was everything slow, everything painful, everything kind of on the the sort of consumer of insurance to prove themselves, and and that's where it really really mattered. And, and it won't surprise you the one I'm renewing and one I'm not. So you know, it's a, it's as simple as that. Um, at the point it comes, um, you've also done a few interesting things about kind of the setup of the business, and and you know this is I thought this is a really interesting conversation to have. You've got a hybrid MGA captive and carrier model, um. You know, there, there's so many ways to kind of approach this, but I think because you've kind of touched on all points, I was like, you know, why did you go down this route? And and kind of pros and cons of the alternatives, of, I thought it'd be really interesting to break down because of given your background. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, look, if you back way up, you say we're trying to build the number one provider of personal insurance through independent agents. Now that's going to be, even in today's dollars, if we if we could snap our fingers and get there tomorrow, we can't. It's gonna be years, like I said. But that's that's yeah. a thirty forty billion dollar premium business, the way that we see it. Now, that requires a lot of capital of some variety. Ultimately, you're not someone is taking the risk. Someone is backstopping those losses. Someone has the rainy day fund of surplus that is that is enabling it to make us to make sure that we meet regulatory standards we're able to keep our promises now who is that going to be one answer is we're going to be an mga and we're not going to you know so we're not going to rely on capital our own capital markets to do that we're going to rely entirely on other people carriers and reinsurers who we work with now that's a great model because it's very very capital light but it's a very risky model because that model that world goes has cycles that are unrelated to general investment cycles and goes up and down. And it might be one day they just decide to turn you off because the taste is not for the product you're providing. And you maybe you can do that if you're a, a small niche business, but you really can't have a 30 or $40 billion business uh, riding on that. The other extreme is like what I'll call the, maybe it's unfair, but like the state farm extreme where you say, we're, we're just going to have an enormous pile of capital that we build up somehow over time. That's of our own. And then we're not relying on external reinsurance at all. But that's 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 a tough model. If you've been around for 200 years, you might have that. But it, you know, it's very very hard to organically build that. To rely on capital markets at the early stage, you've got people who have certainly double digits, sometimes 20, 30, 40 percent return expectations at for a business at our stage. And to say, yeah, we're going to go build a giant balance sheet with those kind of return expectations, that's very expensive. So to me, it's not an it's not an either or. It's um, given our growth aspirations we we need to be open to all forms of capital and we, we're gonna we're never gonna be just using one we're gonna we're gonna always be you know kind of using multiple forms of capital and in any given year we'll be using the one that is most economical and kind of most in favor for our business so therefore like you said we have this complex structure where we have our own we have an admitted carrier we have a captive those two 
vehicles we use to take we we a lot of our own cooking take a lot of our own risk especially in this market it's a really tough reinsurance market therefore we're taking mm. about 40 percent of our own uh quota share risk this year that might be less three years from now if reinsurance is different it will never be zero uh, but at the same time we also talk to investors and say hey you're not just investing in a tech business you have to know that you're investing to some degree in a balance sheet business and so we're also gonna you know we're, we're you're, you're gonna have to have those return expectations it's a little bit safer maybe than a pure tech business but it's also um you know maybe you're not going to get the thousand percent return every year so that's our approach uh and i and i like i said i don't think it's polar i think you can you can play in the middle and, and be intelligent economically about it and there's plenty of capital needs going forward for us that we we can afford to do all of those mm. Well, I think, I think people have tried to make it a bit of an either-or conversation in the past. I think people have said, oh, you know, digital MTA, and then I have to be a full-stack carrier. And, and and there's been a sort of um, almost an unsophisticated conversation about it. Um, I mean, maybe that comes in boiling down to talking points on things like this as a podcast. But but I, I, but I, I, th I thought it was interesting that you've got this hybrid model because it kind of speaks a little bit to your background. Um, obviously, you know, actual science uh, in the background, also, sports statistics, and we touched on that. I didn't know you're a poker player, and um, yeah, I, I got obsessed with poker when I was at university. I was doing economics, and uh, at one point, actually, I, I quit my reading week to see if I could make it as a professional poker player. Um, I decided I could probably play the game uh, well enough, but I couldn't deal with the emotional ups and downs. That was <laughs> that was my uh, <laughs> swings were tough. Um, wanted to switch this conversation briefly back to um, statistics, you know. How much further can we go? And 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 I know that's in a way it's an oversimplified question, but I, I suppose what I'm getting at is like, how much further is useful to go? Do you think when we sort of, I I, I sometimes I've kind of had this theory that that the the smaller and smaller the point we get to is like sometimes we get get away from the law of large numbers that, that makes insurance work. So I suppose I'm asking in that context, it might not be quite as mad as the questions I, I posed. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, I think there's a couple levels of the question. It's um, how how far could one in in theory go? Uh, well, look, 5% of homes roughly have a claim each year. So in, if you had a, if your rating model was the crystal ball, let's say, and you could predict that completely perfectly in advance, then for, you could capture 95% of the market who you know are not going to have claims. You could charge them just about yeah. anything and, and win and make lots of money, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, we're, we're obviously extremely, extremely far, but I, I do think it's helpful to have that in mind, that crystal ball, because that that just serves as, in my mind, a break on the thinking of, well, you know, maybe we have it all figured out. Maybe home insurance has like matured in a statistical sense. And to me, that there's nothing farther from the truth. So home insurance, to get a little nerdy, is a very, very hard problem. And that's for a few reasons. One is the risks are highly differentiated. Um, right, the the ninety five five thing I just said. The signal is very complex, and there's a lot of noise involved. So, you know, the signal could be, you know, the the person and the house and the exact location and the interaction of all the hundreds of things that you know about that. So you say, okay, that's great. Let's bring in, you know, some massive large language model style neural net and give it a billion parameters and allow it to figure it out. But then you run into the noise, right? Because unlike some other problems, it's highly, highly noisy. What what that model will do is it'll just completely overfit and it will predict who had a claim in the past, but not at all who is going to have one in the future. And so it's this beautiful, in my mind, statistical challenge of not overreacting to the noise at the same time that you uh, do react to the, to the rich complexity of the signal. Um, so again, that's me kind of nerding out for a second, but 
I, to me, it is really exciting to work on a problem that is not solved and probably won't be solved for the next 20 years. And therefore, you know, I, I look at people who um, are, are quantitatively inclined and say, hey, there's some really cool stuff. You can come make a very real concrete impact on a business that we see daily in the market by working on very, very complex, hard problems that are even pushing forward, like almost the, the, the core science. I think there are actually new algorithms that we need to be able to handle some of the highly dimensional uh, insurance problems. So that, that to me is nirvana of, if I were a, uh, you know, a, a younger analyst coming into a quantitative field, that would be my nirvana. I don't think we do a good enough job of, um, of selling the proposition at times because you think there can't be a more complex you know, the, the world in which to kind of look at using that kind of statistical analysis. But but we just it just comes with this horrible baggage of being insurance. Um, and uh, I mean, there's so many good, pithy, wonderful quotes out there about insurance being the most boring thing. I always talk about it because I'm, I'm a huge movie nerd. And it's like, if you want to see a movie about about if it's about anyone boring that person is always either a claims adjuster or an actuary they're, they're, they're never anything else um which is which is damaging to us both um i know i'm flip-flopping here slightly but we touched on reinsurance markets when we we're talking about the kind of hybrid business model that you're on and and i just probably want to finish on this conscious of time but it's been a really challenging sort of reinsurance market um what do you kind of perceive uh, is there going to be any changes in that that you foresee in the sort of coming future or, or are we in for a bit of a tough time yet yeah look i mean reinsurance is a huge expense um obviously for a, a carrier like us that doesn't have an enormous balance sheet but but frankly you look at if once you get beyond kind of the top five that you're, you're suddenly pretty reliant on various forms of reinsurance and even the top carriers are reliant on it for you know big giant earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that so mm -hmm. everybody needs this um it goes in its own high amplitude cycles they're sometimes correlated with the broader business cycle sometimes not right now we're at a cycle in the reinsurance market where it is it's property catastrophe reinsurance very specifically is probably two or three times more expensive right now in the US than it was at the the bottom of the cycle, which was probably irrationally, <laughs> it's too underpriced, right? Uh, a few mm. years ago. So it, it, it goes around and around. Um, I will say the it's so interesting to watch these cycles. You'll see the reinsurers, as of a year ago, all the um, kind of scuttlebutt was, everyone was fleeing away from property reinsurance, climate change, you just couldn't reinsure the, you know, this, this property stuff anymore. And therefore, and we're in an inflationary environment, therefore we're going to long-tailed casualty. And you say, well, but every underwriter, that's what they wanted to write. It's something where the, the payoff or the, the court case is gonna be settled in five or 10 years. And you say, well, I was taught as an actuary that back that the, the worst thing you could do in, a, in an environment of unpredictable inflation is flee into a line where you're not even gonna know the claims cost for five or 10 years when you finally pay out. And so that struck me as a little bit irrational. And I think a lot of the underwriters at the time even saw that, but the owners of these reinsurance companies or the LPs or whoever, whatever their ownership structure were just saying, I know, but we, we've had it. We just don't want this property stuff anymore. Now that, that dynamic reached peak, I don't know if it's fear, uh, probably nine months ago and it's, it's swinging the other way. So I do think it's going to be very expensive, but at least available and a little bit more orderly, uh, and, and I'm sure that two or three years from now we'll be in the other part of the cycle where property reinsurance will be cheaper and everyone will see the results of underpriced casualty reinsurance. Um, but it's like I said, it's just another reason every, when, when I hear people say, 
we're going to be a pure MGA model and therefore have like no balance sheet and it's capitalite. It's like a software company. It's, you you can say that if you kind of close your eyes and pretend like you're not, but everyone is ultimately beholden to balance sheet capital. And it's, it, it, you can pretend like you're not, but, but you are, if you're relying on carriers and reinsurance, that is just equally as hard over the long term as having to raise your own balance sheet capital. And so don't, don't trick yourself into thinking that you're immune from balance sheet capital by, by using that MGA model. It's, it's just, just not true. Brilliant. Um, Ty, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Um, you know, you were, you, you're good sport and kind of putting together some sort of fairly tricky questions there. And uh, yeah, um, it, it's, it's stuff that kind of, it's, it's always kind of things that are picking away at me and, and, and the hybrid model particularly, I was really fascinated by. So um, look, I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks once again for being a, a guest on the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I uh, appreciate the opportunity.